What's going on? Welcome to the Land Podcast. This week, we have a great episode with Kent from the First Gen Hunter Podcast. And Kent works at Hoxie Seed, which is a native seed company out of Iowa. He talks about how he moved from Illinois to the family farm. And this is a really good conversation for anyone that wants to get a little bit of uh, insight on setting uh, setting some goals and some parameters and seeing them through and also how to establish warm season grasses. It can be really confusing for someone that is brand new to it. And it's, this is uh, for sure gonna help you out this upcoming year or this fall for spraying to help establish warm season grasses next year. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this conversation. I know I did. And if you are brand new here, the Goal of the Land podcast is very simple and straightforward. It is to help 100 people buy their first farm. There's three ways to be included on that list. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois and you're looking in an area that um, I have some expertise, be happy to help you as a buyer's agent. Typically cost you nothing to have someone on your corner and help you throughout the process. Number two, if you wanna get connected with someone I would consider doing business with, I'm happy to make an introduction and you can make your decision from there. And then number three, if you just simply learn something from the show, helps you take action with confidence. I wanna hear it. We had a, actually we had two this past week. So love to hear it. And that is it for now, but I will leave you with this. We don't run any ads on here. It's very straightforward. And <clears throat> Exodus is running a sweet deal right now. You can save 20% off the Exodus render by using the code LP. If you're not familiar with the Exodus render, I'll give you a couple things that come to mind. Five-year warranty, five-year theft and damage coverage. Also built on the Verizon 4G LTE network has a two-inch screen in it. It is our flagship model and it is a very reliable, great camera for this upcoming season. So use the code LP, you're gonna support the Land Podcast, support Exodus, and would greatly appreciate it. And in return, you're gonna get a camera that's guaranteed for five years and you're gonna save some serious coin with 20% off. So that is it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Kent. Let's get right into it. Here we go. Kent, how's it going today? Oh, doing great, man. I'm uh, here at the city library. I live out in the sticks and I have, um, starlink internet which is really pretty good you know like uh -huh. we stream on it and but for whatever it is whenever i record a podcast on starlink i have like two or three hiccups per episode and i was like you know i i don't want to do jake that way I, you know, I don't want him to have to do all that post editing so i'm gonna get myself a library card by the time i leave this interview, so. <laughs> well i can i'm pretty sure you're the first person recorded the library so you you are in uh elite company there by yourself <laughs> Well, well, that's how you know you're talking to hunters. You know, there's always some kind of connectivity issue because we all like to live out in the sticks. I know. So, that's such so a good point. Part of it, you know. Yeah, that's uh, honestly for the production value that the community does produce, we should all be thankful because in that's reality, right, exactly. we are not media guys. Are. We're just, <laughs> we're just right. having conversations here. But, um, well, first off, thanks for coming on here. I was, uh, you guys were gracious enough to have me on your guys' podcast, the, the First mm. Gen Hunter, Hunter podcast. But, Go ahead and just take a chance to introduce who you are and a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I just want to say I was, you know, honored that you asked me to come on your show. I've listened to your show for a while. I've known who you, who you are for a long time. You've, you've really established a strong name for yourself in the hunting industry and, and you might get that a lot, but it's interesting. I think coming from a, as you said, my podcast is the first gen hunter podcast coming from somebody who learned about hunting in the age of, of what we're doing right now, you know, uh, podcasts were my biggest hunting mentor. You know, I've had some guys along the way that, that sure. took me under their wing a little bit and so forth, but 
But, uh, you know, listening to uh, guys like Mark Kenyon on Wired to Hunt and listening to uh, his co-host, Dan Johnson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember uh, Exodus was partnered with Dan uh, uh, for a long time. And he was talking about Exodus trail cameras all the time. And so, you know, I started watching your guys stuff on YouTube and, and obviously know the great reputation that Exodus has there. And it's cool to see you guys doing all the stuff that they do with that. But, but I know, I really mean that, uh, just, just, uh, getting to see your stuff through the years and, and knowing that whenever I tune into either of your podcasts, it's going to be really quality stuff. There's some, some friends of mine have been on, on a couple of your shows. Um, we got some mutual friends there, Skip Sly, Steve Hansen, uh, Chase Burns, you know, these, these are some of the most trustworthy guys I feel in the industry and especially specifically, you know, in the whitetail corner and um, you to be able to learn from them by just tuning into your show. That's it, it's, I feel humbled to be, to be on here. Right <laughs> yeah. now. It's, it's pretty cool, but yeah. you no. Know, so first gen hunter, like I said, I, I, I didn't grow up hunting, but it's interesting because um. I'm one of those lucky people who, when I did decide to get into hunting, uh, my family owned all this prime whitetail ground. And so I had like a great set of training wheels to, to put on <laughs> when, I, when I went out there. I didn't have to hop on the public land. And although that was part of it too, you know, and because I did have to travel to get to those farms, you know, several hours. And so if I wanted to do anything local, it was all public. So I think that was important for me as well. But um, uh, I grew up you know, doing everything outside, but hunting. Unfortunately, when I was, you know, just a, a real young kid, um, my dad had a coworker who died in a hunting accident and my dad grew up a city slicker and my mom then developed this phobia of firearms and, and every, everything to do with hunting. So it was like, you can take Kent fishing, you can take him, you know, up to the boundary waters on canoeing trips. You can take him out to, you know, the Absaroka Beartooth mountain range in Southwest Montana and <laughs> backpack and grizzly country, but you cannot take him hunting, you know? And, and so I did like all this cool stuff growing up and, and outside, but never, never hunted until I became an adult. And once I got started in my mid twenties, which is longer ago than I want to remember and, and, and admit, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I just became hooked and, um, you know, in a previous career, I was a, I was a biology teacher for eight years. And when you, so I, you know, I earned a couple degrees in college, uh, in, uh, you know, related fields, uh, in biological studies. And so I was studying about, you know, animal behavior, how ecosystems work. And it was like nudging me back in this direction. And I always wanted to hunt. You know, I had, we were talking about a, a guy that I know well, uh, Garrett Fike, uh, before we started recording and, um, uh, he was my younger brother's best friend growing up and he loves to hunt he's, he's just a born hunter. And, uh, he, you know, he would like get us that little inside scoop and I had, you know, other friends growing up that, that hunted. And so it, it kept my interest there. And so then when I finally was like, you know what, I'm just going to go and, and I'm going to figure this out. It like, you know, it sucked me in instantly <laughs> and, yeah. and it's, it's changed my life, you know, for the, for the better. Um, and it's been cool too for my wife, cause we've been married for over 10 years now. You know, she talks about how 
I'm such a uh, different person now since I started hunting than before I did. She's, She's like, you're more interesting now. <laughs> so she must have had that bar set pretty low when she said when she said yes. But but uh, no, it's been it's been so good for me. And even now, then as I mentioned, I'm, I'm no longer a biology teacher. I transitioned into uh, the conservation space, and uh, I work on. I, I call myself a prairie farmer because that's that's literally what what we do. We we work on a prairie farm. Um, we being my company, uh, Hoxie Native Seeds, um, not that I own it or anything. I just work for him. Um, uh, my boss, Carol Hoxbergen, he started the company, uh, uh, 35 years ago and, uh, we grow, um, just under 50 different species of prairie grasses, flowers, and, uh, sedges. And, uh, we work a lot with hunters. Uh, they they'd be one of our top customers, but also, uh, a lot of farmers who, um, you know, have CRP contracts that they need seed for. And uh, then of course, a lot of online retail for backyard pollinator and, and uh, you know, maybe just a few flower species. And, and, and one of my favorite things I get to do is go around to people's uh, uh, farms or properties and do consultation work and uh, tell them, hey, this is how you could improve, you know, your goals for your property. And almost every time there's something related to either hunting or wildlife. And, uh, really that's, that's when you start getting into my deepest, you know, uh, passions for, for, uh, what it is that I do. So yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy thing, but it all goes back to hunting that nudged me in all these directions, both when I was growing up and, and now as an adult in my professional world. Yeah, I've I've thought pretty often of what would I do if I wasn't interested yeah. in land and, and hunting. Yeah, uh, I think uh, to the inverse of your wife's assessment, I probably would be a lot less interesting because I wouldn't be fired <laughs> up about anything. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, watch a lot know, of football. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's what I was doing. You know, it was boy, I went you know, I'm done with work for the day. I guess I'll go grade papers and watch TV, and you know, that's fine, I guess. But like you said. You know, what, what I realized was I was living a spectator's life. You know, I'd watch, I'd, I'd even watch hunting shows or I'd watch, you know, like alone on the history channel. I remember that show first came out like 10 years ago. And, and, uh, you know, then I started thinking, it's like, why am I watching all these people do this cool stuff? Why don't I go do something cool? And, uh, that was, you know, that was part of it for sure. That's really cool. So you lived in Illinois and then you obviously mm-hmm. transitioned to Iowa. How did that happen? Was that when you got your new job or did you do a teaching stint in Iowa as well and then transitioned into Hoxie Seed? Yeah. So I grew up in the Quad City area. And uh, when you live in the Quad Cities, Illinois and Iowa are, I mean, it's the only thing that separate, separates them is a bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, people work in Illinois and live in Iowa or vice versa, you know, all over the place throughout the quad cities. And, uh, so when, when my wife and I, we actually met at college, um, in, uh, uh, kind of South central Wisconsin. And, uh, after we got married, we we're like, okay, let's move back to, um, the quad city area. And really we were, when we were, you know, engaged and talking through marriage and everything, our goal was to end up where we are now, which is we moved to one of the family farms. And, um, and then we can talk about that more later, but, 
but we knew that for the time being, that wasn't, you know, that was, that was, you know, eight, nine years off, which ended up being. And, uh, so we just moved back to where I had, you know, a lot of connections and, and, um, I took a, my first teaching job at, uh, Riverdale high school in Port Byron, Illinois, that place holds a, a big part of my heart there. It's a special community. And, um, I taught there for five years and, uh, uh, just, uh, you know, there was, there was a ton that I enjoyed about it, but teaching is a very challenging job. And, um, we can get into that too. You know, we talked through the career change, why I made it and, and everything, but, but, um, uh, when we moved there, you know, Port Byron's kind of located in an interesting place. It's a little bit further up the Mississippi river in the quad city area, kind of around the, around the bend. Right. And, um, so you could live in Iowa and still be pretty close to, even though it wasn't like in Moline or Rock Island, it was kind of a bedroom community there, but, but you could, you could live in Iowa and still be fairly close and uh, you just take a different bridge over. <laughs> and, and uh, so we lived in Bettendorf uh, for a little while there. And the reason I wanted to move to Iowa was, um, do you remember like back I think we're pretty, I think I'm a little older than you, but we're probably pretty similar age. Uh, do you remember the drama when um, Rob Blagojevich went to prison, the the governor of Illinois? Yeah, loosely. Yeah, yeah. So I was in college where that was going on, and I had no idea until I went to college. State pride is a big deal in Wisconsin. I, I, had, I had no idea about any of that before I went to college, and I was out of state, and, and uh, oh, the bears, they shock, you know, and all that <laughs> stuff, and and. And, uh, you know, so I started like thinking about this concept of state pride a little bit and everything. And I started to just see how Illinois was getting run through the mud. Cause then, you know, you had Blagojevich going to prison and of course, you know, like five years before that, the previous governor, George Ryan went to prison yep. and, uh, then you had this whole deal where, wow, Illinois can't balance a state budget. Illinois is an absolute disaster state, you know? So it's like, <laughs> still is, honestly. <laughs> yeah, there's still some problems there, but it wasn't really a totally fair rap. And we can talk about that too. But, but uh, I, I kind of was like, you know what? I have an opportunity here. I want to move back to the Quad Cities. I grew up on the Illinois side of the river and it was just fine then, but I'm hearing all these problems. Let's just go live on the Iowa side of the river. And uh, that was like one year before I started hunting when I made that but decision. the hindsight, best decision you could ever oh, make. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. So then I, so what it was, was I went to, uh, so I still liked fishing a lot at that time. And I went to buy an, an Iowa fishing license. And I thought it would just be as simple as just showing up to Walmart and being like, yeah, I used to live in Illinois and now I live in Iowa. Well, because I had bought, a out of state, you know, a non-resident fishing license when I was like 17. Um, it, it flags me as a non-resident in Iowa now. And so I had to prove my residency, which they require a minimum of, I think it's 90 days that you have to live in the state. And uh, then you have to, that, and that's not enough. You can't then show up with your driver's license. And it was issued 90 days ago. And, and you'd be like, see, I live here now. You got to send in like, you know, phone bill or, you know, credit card bills and, and, you know, water bills and stuff like that. Like all this proof of, of uh, your residency. I'm like, what a pain in the neck. It is harder for me to go get a fishing license in Iowa than it is to go vote for the uh, <laughs> leaders of the state, you know, and, and, uh, so I went through all that 
And I thought to myself, I'm never doing that ever again. <laughs> and that's when that was right before I started hunting. And then it made sense because then I started to learn, wow, Iowa is the place to be if you want to hunt whitetails, you know? And um, I looked at the cost because we had this family land and I had a brother-in-law who was getting into hunting at the same time. I was like, man, we should go to, you know, we should go down to that farm that dad owns and, and, um, you know, you can get a hunting license. I, I'm sure it's not that bad. No, you find out what the, you know, how difficult of a process it is for a non-resident to come hunt deer in Iowa. And it's like, I will never give up this Iowa residency <laughs> ever again. And, uh, so, so, uh, we stayed in Iowa and, uh, we moved a, another time, you know, in the quad city area and that took me further away from my job. So, so then I went to another, uh, local high school, actually the one I graduated from, which was pretty cool. I was teaching, you know, biology in the class where I learned it, the classroom where I learned it and, uh, you know, made some, uh, you know, you know, re reconnected on a lot of old contacts, but also made some, some new ones. And, and, um, uh, then, uh, you know, by that point it was, yeah, we're, we're firmly planted in Iowa. And, uh, then we moved out to the family farm and, and, uh, kind of saw the, you know, the, the dream that we talked about years and years ago, my wife and I start to take shape. That's really cool. It's uh, awesome when a vision like that comes to fruition and, uh, then you make it, you know, you do make it happen. Now was you guys were both on the same page initially that you wanted I'll just call it farm life or living in a rural community yeah. in Iowa. Yeah. I, I oftentimes think about how much I owe my father-in-law. Um, he, uh, he, he really like helped shape my wife to, you know, it was going to take a special person to deal with me and uh, <laughs> to be, to be okay with the weird interests that I have. And, and um, uh, Caitlin is the perfect match for me. And a big part of that was she actually grew up in New Hampshire and we met at college, like I said, and, uh, she grew up on a 27 acre piece in, in New Hampshire. And of course up there, you know, uh, it's mostly timber and, but they had kind of a hollowed out little farmstead that really was a farm, you know, a long time ago. In fact, the house was built in 1800. Um, mm -hmm. so very old. So, so, I mean, put that in the context of, I think Illinois, what was the first year? 18, of Illinois? 18. Yeah. 1818. And, uh, uh, then, uh, for Iowa, it wasn't until 1846 till Iowa became a state. And so just a really old piece there. In fact, uh, I think it's the ninth president, Franklin Pierce. Is he the ninth president? Maybe. I don't know. He's close. Actually, you're, you're in the library. I'm sure there's a book yeah. somewhere. Yeah, that's sure. right. I could, just give me a minute here. I'm going to go <laughs> take a step here. But, uh, Franklin Pierce was the neighbor to this farm. He grew, up, he grew up on that, you know, so he was probably down there, you know, help, helping neighbors on that property. But all I'd say this, it was a farmstead. So she grew up having like ducks and chickens and gardens and, and uh, really fell in love with that rural lifestyle. And her dad did do like uh, he fished and he made, he did a little bit of hunting um, so she wasn't, and he was definitely a gun owner. He's an ex, you know, he was an ex Marine and, and all that. And so like, like she wasn't afraid of hunting. Hunting wasn't this, ooh yuck, you know, I can't believe you, you barbarian, you know, type, type thing. It was, she was very accepting of it, interested in it and supportive of, of that. And so the, the farm dream, like you mentioned, you know, it, it just went well for both of us. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you guys, so did you guys buy like the old farmhouse that where your family's farm is situated? Yes. Yep. So my grandfather was born in the bedroom, uh, uh, that he then slept in as an adult for, uh, so he lived in that house for, for 84 years Whoa. and, um, uh, it's beautiful old four square farmhouse. You know, sometimes again, this is another like real fortunate thing that, that the, the way the cookie crumbled for me, you know, sometimes those old farmhouses, you ever like go and look, yeah, you're a real estate guy. So I'm sure you've been, there. you like go there and you're like, you could fix this up all you wanted and it still wouldn't be nice. Like there's th this house was never nice. This house was a place to like get away from the wolves in the rain. You know what I mean? It's like, but that is not the case for us. We have this beautiful house. My grandmother who, you know, she's, she's uh, still living. And, uh, and so is my grandfather. Um, she said when she got married back in, I think it was 1960 when they got married, she felt like she was moving into a mansion, you know, she said about this old farmhouse. So it's a beautiful old farm. It definitely needed updating and, and some things fixed, but the, you know, everything was, was rock solid there. So, you know, it was a, a good place for us to, to dream about, you know, and, uh, it got to the point where grandma, grandpa, you know, they're in their, their uh, mid eighties. They, it was too much to keep up on, you know, big old two story house and just two, two, you know, people in their eighties living there. And uh, so they said to us, they're like, Hey, um, and at this point I'd been looking to buy a place out in the country. I wanted to get, get some ground, uh, you know, out in the rural area. And we tried in the quad city area and nothing, nothing really clicked. And that part and, of Iowa too is really expensive oh, real estate and, and land does land really doesn't change hands there yeah. at all. That whole yeah. Northeast part of the state. Absolutely. Yeah. If someone's listening to this from the quad cities, which I'm sure there is, um it go if you want to buy a hunting piece go buy it in illinois i mean just <laughs> there's just, more inventory and it's definitely it, cheaper. yes yes yeah, but they, I, I would argue the quality of deer is probably not as great but still good well but but honestly in the quad city area i would say yeah. that in that immediate area your whitetail opportunities are even better on the illinois side just more because habitat, every, sure. exactly way more habitat um and uh um, there's not near as many people either. Uh, there's, you know, everyone, everyone got the same feeling I did when old uh, Rob Agoyevich went to prison, they, they all jumped the river. And, and uh, so there's a lot more opportunities there in the quad city, but, but yeah, so uh, moved out to the family farm and, and um, you know, we're like in that phase of, of the dream right now, you know, mm -hmm. that's really cool. And so you, you kind of alluded to, I think before we started recording was you're, you're kind of, this is something I, I admire of teachers. They usually have plans and they usually execute those plans. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, that's what I've noticed with every teacher I've ever really talked to. And uh, so you mentioned that you kind of have a loose plan of trying to acquire some of it. I assume the surrounding uh, ground around your house. Right. Right. So, so when we moved out here, I was, I still taught for a year and that was kind of, you know, teaching or parts I really liked about. In fact, my last teaching job in Illinois at Sherrard High School, I could have, I had the thought that, okay, this is something I could do for the rest of my life. You know, I was, I was working with my best friend every day and um, he, we liked to shed hunt together and squirrel hunt. And uh, he would, he would deer hunt on his family farm. And, and um, uh, we, we just, you know, really had a, we, we look at the world the exact same way. And, um, 
I loved my students. I was teaching great classes, but it was, you know, the farm was too good. It was like, <laughs> if we can find a, find jobs there for my wife and me, we're going to move, you know, and it's a couple hours away, central Iowa. And, um, uh, when, when we got here, I was like, okay, is this an opportunity for me to start looking at other careers? Because I had had that thought all through my teaching career. It, teaching is a very challenging job. Um, there's, there's, so many hours of work to it. If you're going to do a good job, you know, all the, the grading, all the lesson planning, you know, being there for students when they need it, being in contact with parents, all that stuff. It's a, it is an extremely demanding job. And uh, it's hard when you have a family because we have, you know, we have three kids now and um, I was like, okay, I'm going to take whatever job I can get when we move here, which I went from teaching high school to middle school. And Oh man, that was, that was not a fit. It was not. <laughs> and, and I could, I, I hung on for dear life for one year cause I didn't want to leave in the middle of the school year. And I, and my wife and I were like, yep, you got to find something else to do. And, uh, so that's when I jumped into the career I'm in now, but through that process, um, it was a good it was good to have my back up against the wall, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, so a strength of teachers, like you said, they're great planners, but a weakness that a lot of teachers have is we get comfortable in a system, right? You get told when you get your vacation days, you get told uh, what time you have to be to work and what time you're allowed to leave work. You get told when you get to go to the bathroom and when you get to eat lunch, everything is a system. And there's a lot of security in that. I mean, you you get money automatically taken out of your salary to go to your retirement fund. You don't even have to figure that out yourself, mm -hmm. you know? And so it can be very hard for when you're used to that, like I was, to like really put it on the table and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different or I'm going to, I'm going to just step out away from this protective bubble and go and do stuff and so i did that a little bit when we moved out here of course leaving the comfort zone of where i grew up and it was a also a big transition because we were leaving where my parents lived and we had kids and child care is such a especially if you like the hunt <laughs> child care is critically important and uh so we kind of left that behind you know we do have some family here but it's not the same as your parents you know you can't just be like last minute you know hey i I really need you right now, you know, like, so I had that. And then finally stepping into that job was the new job, a total career change that, that I'm doing now that like hit another switch in my brain, kind of like when I started hunting and, um, what it did was it showed me like, Hey, if you're going to live in this system of where you just have this expected income every year and, um, you're going to, you know, be able to see this much money going into your bank account and your savings accounts. That's how much money you're going to have. Okay. You know, you're going to, you're going to be able to survive, but if you want more of this around you, uh, cause we did buy, you know, we, we got the house and, and, uh, you know, a couple acres to go with the house that I'm, you know, very thankful to have. I probably own more land than most people that are 34 years old in Iowa. Um, but, but, uh, that, you know, I want, I want to own a lot more. And my, so that helped uh, that whole transition helped 
get me to start thinking a different way of like, hey, you got to live with some risk. You got to take some risks. And buying land is a big risk. And um, naturally, but, you know, the whole nature versus nurture thing, um, you know, I was kind of raised to be like of a conservative mindset. Risk or not risk Right, right. exactly, exactly. Like, like, you know, be very wise, be very careful. And so I developed... I've recently discovered because I have a coworker, Nicholas, so this, I'm sure Nicholas will tune into this. Uh, uh, Nicholas, you've taught me so much. He is a, he is a full on risk guy. He's, <laughs> he's like, look, I don't have, I don't have a lot of money, so I'm going to have to build equity if I'm going to, if I'm going to grow. And so he just, he's signing papers, I think today for uh, his third property. And he's, you know, he's uh 26. Wow, and, and he's, he's, uh, you know, he's shown me a mindset of that is very different from mine. So here's what I kind of started to realize. There's two ways that most people view money. There's, there's the, the way that I grew up, which is money is something that you shove under your mattress and make sure that it stays safe and make sure that you're always, you know, you, you don't ever have to go, you know, up to your parents front door with your hat in your hand saying, please help me. I'm broke. You know, it's, you, you, you always take care of yourself and you, you don't be wasteful, but then there's people that money is data. It's just numbers. I have so many credits in my account. How do I get more of those credits? And, and, uh, they, they're, they're fearless. And of course that blows up in plenty of those people's faces a lot of time, but when you look at the people who own, who own, you know, like, like our mutual friend, Skip, who owns thousands of acres of, of hunting land after he grew up on food stamps in Michigan, owns thousands of acres of Iowa hunting ground. Uh, that guy puts his, puts his money where his mouth is. He takes a risk. He, he's fearless. Right. And, the system that we have, our economy, all the different little nuts and bolts that make our economy rewards risk in the end, good risks in the end. And uh, so I, so by going through these major life changes, you know, kind of all at once, getting kind of like slapped around a little bit, <laughs> you know, it forced me to look at things differently. And so now that being said, my wife and I were working very hard on, we got a, you know, fund set up to start doing kind of what Skip has done. And, you know, another friend of ours, Steve Hansen has done where you, and you've done really, where you're making those purchases and uh, I'm gonna try and do some land improvements. And uh, I would love to, um, you know, this is where my goal is a little bit, which, you know, is an important thing, I think, when it comes to land ownership that people understand, not every goal has to be the same, you know? Um, I really want to preserve my family's farm. Um, you know what, you know, something that, oh, you know, what, probably like 70% of Iowans have in common is they can all talk about the farm ground that their family used to own. Mm. And, uh, uh, and, and now their only options are to go knock on doors or go hunt public land. Yeah. And it didn't have to be that way. Well, probably. It's, yeah, it's crazy. You say that. there's a, I have a, flat map of the township I live in now mm -hmm. from 1912 and uh, where I live now it was on my mom's side but Hofer is all over yeah. that flat map everywhere yeah. all over and I'm <laughs> yep. looking at it like 
the only Oprah on there now is like here. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's exactly that case. I can remember my grandpa was like, you know, you sell that, that, and that. Why'd you sell it? You need money. Why is that? Yeah. You know, so it's, That's just, right. it's crazy. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, and there's not that that was necessarily, you know, wrong that that all went down. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go as far as saying it was good that it all went down, you know, because I think there's a lot of people that came, you know, as descendants to all these former landowners that would have loved the opportunity to, to own a piece of ground, not just for hunting, you know, whitetails is just a, a piece of that, you know, maybe they wanted it because they wanted to actually do some farming. Maybe they wanted to raise all their own protein or all, you know, most of their produce and, they didn't get that chance. And now it's very, very challenging uh, to, for people to see how they can get back into that. Um, uh, so, you know, we just had a farm, a neighbor's farm went to auction on Saturday, this past Saturday. And I believe it brought, it was 160 acre tract, brought 18.5 an acre. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, that is, you know, just astronomical numbers. That ground was probably purchased by him. Uh, I would guess probably $600 an acre, you know, probably 40 years ago or something like that. And just to see how that's changed. If I don't get involved now, you know, what's, first of all, the temptation is going to be there, right? Right now, there's so much nostalgia and, and appreciation for that land by my grandfather who bought it off of his parents. There's so much appreciation there that I don't think it's really in jeopardy of, of changing hands, you know, but you go down another generation. Yeah. You know, my mom and my aunt, I would assume they would probably, you know, like to keep it, but how long do you, do you get to do that? You know, that changing of, of hands through the generations and everyone's like, Oh yeah, we're happy to just receive, you know, cash rent payments, you know, twice a year or quarterly or whatever, and some CRP money, you know, when we could go sell it for, you know, probably by that point, $22,000 an acre, you know, and, and then I become one of those, you know, seven out of 10, that's just a made up number, but, (laughs) but I become one of those people who gets to talk about the farm ground that I used to love. And I, my family used to own and where I used to have the freedom to literally walk out my door and walk to my tree stand. Uh, How many people get that, that love to hunt deer can get to literally walk to their tree stand, like never get in a vehicle. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Hardly. Yeah. And that's how it used to be for everyone if they yeah. wanted it, yeah. you know? And so, I think, yeah, I think you make such a great point that anymore, more likely, you know, most people listening to this or most people aspiring for that, you're going to have to make conscious efforts to make absolutely. That and I think, and I assume that's uh, alluded with your guys' investment fund and what you guys yep. are, you know, very strategically with the plan, putting money yep. away to, to ensure that opportunity remains there or, or improves. Right. Right. And, and so the goal then is with that investment is to start buying land, making improvements on it. Um, you know, I'm so blessed to have a guy like Skip who's who's been so supportive and and you know always there for any questions I have to guide me through this. 
Um, and but honestly, anybody can skip share so much information. I mean, just go follow Iowa Whitetails on Instagram and you'll see multiple videos a day telling you how to take care of your ground and and how to, you know, he's been on your podcast, he's been on my my work podcast, um, talking about his method and it works. The proof is there, you know. And so, but again, it's risky, right? You gotta you gotta be putting this money away, it's gonna hurt. You know, you don't have that extra money to go eat out and, um, you don't, you know, as much as you want, you, you don't have that extra money to maybe have a big car payment or, or car payment at all, you know? And, and that's another part of the plan too, is we've really worked hard to try and minimize, um, uh, some of that extra stuff that I think keeps people out of the game, you know, um, both for farming and for, uh, for buying land you know another part of it is people would like to do some of the farm work on their ground but they're like man a tractor cost cost $250,000 for a tractor well what are you doing buying a brand new tractor yeah how would you go buy a 1971 Alice, you know chalmers (laughs) thousand series that thing will pull anything that you need and and you can get that for seven thousand dollars you know or or even smaller you know there's a lot you can do a little four to eight in you know and and uh if you know and the same thing goes for vehicle payments you know go buy a honda an old honda or you can't really get it everyone the word's out on the old toyotas now i mean man you got to now. yeah, yeah. It's, it's only has five hundred thousand miles on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh that you know it's but you know the the principle is there where if you're willing to make those sacrifices on those other things that yes they're nice it's nice to have a nice vehicle we used to do that um we don't anymore thankfully um it's nice to go for those other things but it just ties up so much of your money that as you know i mean when we were coming out of high school what was what were land prices then probably half of what you know, half of what they are for a lot of places now. Uh, now, thankfully, we're we're mostly interested for the hunting value, and, and a timbered ravine is still, uh, you know, a very affordable price compared. A lot to, cheaper than eighteen five an acre. Yeah, yeah, pancake <laughs> flat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pancake flat row crop ground. Uh, but but um, you know, there's if if you aren't able to put away enough money fast enough that that inflation of those land prices is going to be growing faster than your your startup fund and yep. so you got to find ways to to trim off some of the expense to to be able to make you know put that money away and and then when the right piece comes along find a way to buy it and so um that's that's really the phase that we're into expanding ours um it doesn't really um you know i as far as you know, our farm that we want to buy, hopefully eventually someday we could do that, or at least a large portion of it. Um, it's not the best whitetail place. Uh, the The value I'm after is bigger than that. The value I'm after is something that money really can't buy, um, which is, this is the place where I grew up. You know, my family moved around a fair bit growing up. And when your grandpa, when your grandparents live in the same house for 84 years, that's a constant. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all those years I longed to hunt. One thing my parents did let me have was a BB gun. And I wandered all 240 acres of that family farm with that BB gun 
and seeing pheasants, finding deer, shooting at raccoons and possums and, you know, sparrows and, and, you know, put, putting together some of my deepest, most meaningful memories in my life, my deep connection to the land um, is on that family farm. And so preserving that is going to take a lot of money, but actually being able to buy that anywhere else is impossible. It, yeah. it can only happen here. And, uh, if, if, uh, that's ever going to happen, um, then I gotta, you know, we gotta have a big plan in, in place and, uh, do a lot of praying too. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You can do all that. And you still have to have a couple of late, uh, lucky breaks along the way, but, Absolutely. but you have to be, you have to do half the work to have, you gotta have a little bit of luck, but you also have to do the work to take opportunity of when luck presents. Itself. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. And, you know, with the ground that we have now, we try to maximize that too. Um, we have, so I have in the works right now, a, a pretty large prairie plot and boy, do I get looks and boy, do I get, you know, doubtful remarks and, and, uh, you know, from, because people are not educated on what prairie is. Um, and, uh, I know that if I can start to change that mindset in my neighborhood, which, uh, you know, my neighborhood is all farmland and um, uh, all of it's been developed, of course. Uh, Iowa is just as developed. It's the most terraformed place on the planet. Uh, Iowa is just as developed as Manhattan Island. It's just a different kind of development. We've been Meaning the, meaning the row crop is... is the right, crop. right. It's been modified from its original its original condition just as much as Manhattan Island has. Uh, wow. And, and um, if I can, if I can start to show people, this is what habitat looks like. Then when I talk about what habitat is, then they can buy into it a little bit more. And now I have influence on ground that I can't own, that I can't even hunt, but affects how I hunt. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, we get hyper-focused. Well, this is the ground I own. This is, or this is the ground I have permission to hunt on. And as long as I don't put a tree stand here, then I won't cut off deer traffic to there. And as long as I'm not in here uh, during this point in the, you know, in the year, then I won't spook all the deer here. Yeah. But what's going on in your neighbor's place, you know? And if you, if you really want to have a sweet place to enjoy wildlife and enjoy hunting, uh, you got to start teaching people and there's many ways you can do that. And the biggest one is, is people got to be able to see it. And so we're working on this big prairie plot. We've planted a bunch of trees. Um, uh, we, I think we pr planted uh, right around 30 trees this spring, uh, mostly oaks, um, but a few other species as well. Um, and what that's done. Oh, and I had another prairie plot that I put in last year. It was all transplanted uh, uh, grasses that were growing in the wrong production field, and my boss <laughs> let me take them home. And and uh, nice bonus to the work. That's right. That's right. That's right. Fringe benefits. Um, when it was interesting because my grandpa, who is very loving and very caring and very patient with me, uh, he's still you know in good physical health, and he is he's a farmer. You know he he uh, that that's what he did for his career. He's retired now, but he sees the value in land as row crops and he doesn't know anything about big blue stem, Indian grass, little blue stem, you know, side oats growing. He doesn't know that stuff. Those, those native grasses. Um, it's not that he doesn't 
care about them, but, but that's not something that's familiar to him. Well, it is now because the other day he comes by my, that transplanted prairie plot, uh, is all coming up in big blue and Indian and, and, uh, SOG and switchgrass and, and, uh, some, uh, hoary vervain in there as well. And you could tell he was just very interested in it. And that was the first time where I saw him make a connection with, oh, this is what you're talking about. And then a week later, he comes to um, our, uh, we had a Prairie Appreciation Day at work and just opened to the, it's like an open house to the public. Mm-hmm. Well, he came, you know, to support me. And that was just so meaningful to have him there. And I got to drive, we, we rented all these uh, stretch limo golf carts to uh, like tour people around the, our production fields and stuff. And um, grandpa came and his older brother, who's uh, uh, 89, I think, or 90, uh, he came. And uh, so here you have these two old farmers that were from the era of when all this modification was finalized. You know, the generation before them is really who set the moldboard plow to the prairie and, and eradicated it, uh, most of it. But the last little bits of it, they go into the going into the fence rows, you know, kind of started as they were getting out, as they were retiring. And now, of course, today you got, you know, tillage that goes over the crown of the ditch, you know, to get that last row of corn or soybeans in. And, and so for them, it's a paradigm shift. But they were fascinated by it. They wanted to know more about it. This, this, was, this was a foreign concept to them. And um, I had uh, a like a little piece of evidence coming out of that, that a value, like a value system was created for my grandfather because shortly after that Prairie Appreciation Day, when he saw these production fields, he saw the stuff that was, that belonged here where he's lived for 86 years. Um, he went up to Wisconsin to visit um, um, his in-laws um, his, uh, so my grandmother's got her, uh, her siblings are still living and they would go up there and they visit them every couple times a year. And he came back and he's telling me about how he saw all this big blue stem growing in the ditches <laughs> in Wisconsin and how it was so neat to see that. And I guess this is a long winded way of saying that through trying to do just something other than Kentucky bluegrass in my yard, he he made a connection that now means that the those habitat acres on the ground that I really don't have any you know much control over at all because it's his ground and it's leased by another guy for for farming. He has a value system now that protects that more than ever before, and and I I, I also want to give a big you know hats off to my grandfather. He was one of the first guys in the area to sign a CRP contract. Wow! And and uh, he's had CRP since the eighties, you know, which I think nineteen eighty seven maybe is when CRP came around. And so he would have been like in that first or second year of CRP, he gave up 25 acres of ground for CRP. And so he already valued habitat, but now he understands what it is, why it's valuable. And so just by trying to be an example and trying to pass on a form of education, 
there's been a value system there that protects something that I don't have control of otherwise. All because, you know, I was able to do something in my my two acre piece, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Now even uh this this a uh, couple weeks ago I actually helped the neighbor plant a food plot. <laughs> Which yeah, that's you, awesome. you, would think, you would think, why would you help your neighbor? But yeah, there's limited habitat and, and limited yeah. quality water food. And I was like, they asked me, what would you do? And I gave them some advice. Like, do you think you'd come help? Yeah, sure. Right down the road. So um, awesome. you're right. Uh, so much of it's more connected than what is just physically on your ground. And uh, mm-hmm. rising, rising tides does raise all ships and the more education. And, you know, maybe next year he'll say, you know, the food pot was great, but uh, what kind of trees did you plant back behind your place yep. again? And then it just kind of unfolds from there. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. But uh, you make a great point of just, it's the education gap. And also in the perfect way of, of your words, is it is a paradigm shift of, oh, there, there are different things that we can do. Yeah. This isn't the only way to do things. So that's uh, that's really cool. And given your, given your as a guy from my, like myself, we're trying to learn a lot of this. Warm season grasses, establishing them, maintaining them, it's intimidating. And mm, it's very, yeah. and I feel that there's so many ways to do it. And if, uh, like, I'm in a switchgrass Facebook group, and yep. you have someone ask a piece of advice, and you get 17 different answers. And I don't know if all <laughs> 17 are viable or not. Um, but given that's what you do for work, I wanted to ask you some questions about yeah. uh, native seeds and some some things that maybe people do wrong, but we'll, we'll go right into that. But Right now it's September. What is something that someone should be doing if they think next year they want to try to plant some warm season grasses with pollinators? Yep. Uh, you need to start now. Uh, so uh, one of the biggest mistakes people make when they want to establish a native grass planting is they, they don't get the ground prep right. Um, this is something Skip talks about as well. You know, he's he's big on getting a soil test done. I agree with that. I think that's smart. Now, fortunately, um, most native species can handle some pretty diverse soil constraints. You know, there's, uh, although we did, you know, I have a, there's another podcast I host called the Prairie Farm Podcast that goes with hawks and of seeds that's our company podcast and we just interviewed a guy who's who is uh, he works with iowa state extension and uh he helps mostly fruit growers but he taught horticulture for uh i think 15 years uh at the college level and he said you know we can recommend to people to go plant we'll say big blue stem the most iconic of the prairie grasses um, which gets way taller than uh switchgrass, by the way. Um, Ooh, I, even, even a Canlo switchgrass. Um, it gets, I have a great picture. I'll text it to you after we're done here of, uh, we have our Canlo, we have a Canlo switchgrass production field, which is known as being, I think it's the second tallest cultivar of switchgrass. I think, um, I think it's a uh, big rock, the new big rock cultivar that's kind of hitting the market here. The last, the last year or two mm-hmm. is is maybe it's a little taller than Canlo, but there was some big blue that had snuck into that field and established itself. And it was towering over the Canlo. It was pretty impressive. But um, he said, don't, you know, you can tell someone to put big blue into a field, but what if all this topsoil is, you just have like two inches of topsoil left and then it's just hard clay underneath. Well, big blue is probably not going to do so well there because those roots, yeah, they're, as impressive as it gets 
in the plant world, but you can't penetrate, you know, rock to, so, you know, you gotta, you gotta make sure the soil's right there. But then beyond that is you have to uh, make sure you get a good kill of what's there already. And this is one way where I see people mess up prairies all the time. They get one good kill. So uh, obviously the, the fastest, most efficient way to do that is, is a chemical burn down, right? Go out there with some roundup. Um, and I would probably, I mean, depending on what it is, you might, you might consider doing a little uh, 2,4-D in there, a broadleaf killer. Um, but the problem with 2,4-D is it will stay, you know, it'll, if you get too heavy with it, it'll be a, there'll be a residual left in the soil. So when that growth comes up in the spring, then it gets killed off by that. And so you gotta be, you gotta be careful with that. I would, I would say most cases stick to, you know, the right rate of roundup and, uh, burn everything down once in the fall in the fall or you can do that you know it's just depending your time to start is either in the, the 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 spring or the fall right and do that kill down then let it be barren through the winter um if you're concerned about you know your soil blowing away you could maybe uh plant like some oats on it that fall and maybe even still get you know some some or or uh, yeah, probably just do oats. I would say is probably your best option there. You could maybe do some, some red clover, but that, that might be a little bit late to really get much out of your red clover, but, but you could do some oats there. And the bad thing about red clover too, is you'll have to do a, not to do another kill on that, but with the oats, you know, that's an annual crop, let them come up. If you're worried about having to, you know, fight reseeding of those oats, you can always mow them off before they they go to go to see or i mean right after they go to see but before it's viable seed mow it off and then uh, in the spring wait for that other that next green up and people be like what do you mean a next green up you just killed it off with roundup yeah you killed what the existing stand is but there's years and years of seed stock in that soil from those plants heading out season after season and that's what most people don't realize is that is that there's already seed, already tons of viable weed seeds that are waiting for an opportunity to come up. And so you gotta, you gotta get a double kill to take care of all that weed seed that now has this chance because all the competition is removed. You got bare soil, get that second kill in the spring. And then I would seed in May. Um, I'd go ahead and, and uh, make sure you're well past any time where you could get any kind of freeze and uh, go ahead and seed seed down your uh, natives in in may and then you know you talked about the switchgrass groups and stuff and and uh that's kind of a i learned after you know getting into this career field um the the prairie people you know just like any other industry they got their pet peeves and everything and they have their pet peeves for for the pollinator people and they have their pet peeves for the nrcs person and they got their pet peeves for the guy who's just doing crp because he has to and they you know and then they got one for the hunters and that's is we always just plant switchgrass uh-huh. and switchgrass is great but a diverse stand is even better so if you have you have some other species mixed in there you're gonna have better success with your native planting um, you know, it's just like anything, you know, if, when, when we lack diversity in an ecosystem, sure, you can get some, you get all the benefits of switchgrass if all you have is switchgrass. But what if something happens that's really hard on switchgrass, you know, 
Um, what if you get like a bad hailstorm at just the worst time, you know, and, or what if, uh, 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 it just gets so smashed down by so many deer bedding in it that it doesn't really, by the time hunting season comes around, there's not much, not much there to really benefit from it. You know, a diverse mix is it, it sets you up to be, uh, or what if you get, you know, some kind of disease like a, like a, you know, a white mildew or something like that, 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 you know, attacks all those plants that happens in our production fields sometimes, you know, or we're growing these in mon- monocultures, mm-hmm. a diverse stand is going to be, is going to last longer. It's going to require less maintenance. And, um, it, and ultimately it's going to be more beneficial to your, your ecosystem. So if you have a great deer farm you're like man i can hunt deer all day here but then when uh maybe thanksgiving comes around and you got some family visiting and they want to go hunt pheasants you say great i know a guy i bet if we went and knocked on his door he would let us hunt pheasants there because he has pheasants there and i don't have pheasants here well why not why don't you you could add that that diversity there you know put in a uh food source to go in with your switchgrass that serves uh pheasants and quail as well or in the spring, um, you know, you got, you got a, uh, you know, you, you got to go somewhere else to hunt turkeys. Well, why not plant some stuff there that's going to help with turkeys and a, a di- diverse stand would, would do that. So those are really getting the ground prepped is, is number one. And then looking at doing a more diverse mix for your, you know, and I understand, you know, guys want, they want a screen to get to, you know, for access. They want, they want bedding. They want um, maybe a food source mixed in with that bedding area, um, but a diverse stand will will help with that. If uh, you were going to be planting a screen of grass, or mm-hmm. uh, or we'll even throw in miscanthus in this too, what is your favorite screening grass? So it could be a variety of switch. It could be blue. I mean, perfect setting. The soil would support anything. Very blue sky. What would you suggest? So um, I would go uh, a a native tall grass mix that's seeded heavier for a switchgrass, and the reason for that is, um, or or I would do if you if you if you wanted to go like for something really tall, then yeah, you got to have you got to have big blue if you want something that's just really tall. but then just make it thicker, like make it a wider strip, you know, don't make it just, uh, you know, go from a five yard strip to a 10 yard strip. Okay. Um, but the reason I say, if let's say you're, you're really limited, you can only have this, just this narrow five yard, you know, wide strip that's on the edge of a, an ag field or something. The reason I would then suggest going to switch grass is because <clears throat> Big blue and Indian are true bunch grasses, so you're gonna see bare soil in between the plants. Grow in clusters. Exactly. Yep. yep. Exactly. Whereas switchgrass, um, I think technically on paper it is also classified as a bunch grass, but it really is very turfy. Um, uh, we had a clutch go out on one of our wind rowers last year when we were harvesting our switchgrass. And I went to like lay down on the ground to work underneath the machine. And I, I was bleeding because when I laid down, the stand of the switchgrass was so thick 
it was like a and it, we had already trimmed off with the the wind rower uh to down where they're like these sharp little punji sticks you know sticking up from the ground and they were so thick that i couldn't even like find a clear spot to lay down without getting stabbed by all this <laughs> and so that's gonna you know on a thinner strip that's gonna provide more of that that screening cover for you so but again trying to go with that that uh diverse mix for the reasons i mentioned but also it, with a screen your main goal is camouflage right you're trying to stay you're trying to stay invisible to the deer and you get more of that 3d camouflage value when you have things growing at different heights and and um that makes it in my opinion way harder to detect somebody on their ingress and egress to their stand um when they have that that you know network of different of different species there and as far as miscanthus goes um I'd, I'd be careful with that miscanthus yes it's a hybrid but it does spread on rhizome and um it can really compete with your native grasses on on your farm and i actually heard a great explanation on on why fa why farmers and hunters uh usually it's going to be hunters though let's be honest with miscanthus um why they should uh, avoid using uh non-native grasses as much as possible uh for their their hunt property <clears throat> modification and the reason he this was kyle liebarger of the native habitat uh project yeah he and, blew up on instagram last year yes so. yes yeah. yeah he's huge on instagram and he was on wired to hunt with mark kenyon um, mm -hmm. a few months ago and he said um the reason hunters should be concerned about this is because many of our non-native species that we introduce i mean let's think about all of them around us honeysuckle yeah autumn all oh man autumn olive you know and in reality what could be better to screen into your stand than autumn olive <laughs> right but but if if we begin to have a problem with these giant holdings and pompous grass that that one definitely is invasive you know that that takes over and that's real tall stuff but it, it doesn't belong here and if people are 50 years from now saying why do we have all this miscanthus everywhere why do we why is that farm covered in pompous grass why is it and the answer is oh there was a guy who used to be really into hunt, you know hunting whitetails and he planted a bunch of that stuff all over the county and uh now we got it everywhere what a black eye for hunting you know whereas when you stick with the natives or or at least a cultivar off of a native like uh like like big rock switchgrass or tecumseh or or cave and rock you know uh yeah those are cultivars but they're they're similar enough to what should be here and even canlo at our latitude canlo is more of a oklahoma kansas southwest species but it would work at our our latitudes here and we even grow it on our farm um that stuff's not going to create those potential problems that some of the other species but i will say this miscanthus is definitely a better thing to use than pompous grass so um you know so, but, that, yeah right i i constantly always ask myself uh, what what is going to be the automobile of yeah. 50 years all the time uh, yeah. just just because it's fun to think about <laughs> yeah, i don't know right, what that right. answer is but it is fun to think about uh, and, if you, and if you knew the guy who, who <laughs> gave us that scourge <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. so for someone that is let's say they listen to this and they're thinking yeah i really need to put a screen of 
warm season grasses on my farm and I'm going to load up my sprayer with glyphosate, get this prepped uh, for this upcoming year. And I assume using a drill is probably the best way to do it. However, for the guy that doesn't have a tractor that can pull one and run it from the NRCS office or someone, maybe the ground doesn't allow for equipment to get in and out. Do you have any tips for broadcasting that type of seed, when to do it, how to do it and what to do afterwards? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, yeah. I mean, first of all, like you said, it is best if, you know, especially if you have a large area uh, to be able to, to use a drill. So you know what your seeding rate is going to be. And, uh, and honestly, if you, uh, if you're dealing with like a government contract, like a CRP contract, you, there's specific seeding rates you have to follow, you know, certain number of seeds per square foot is, is what they measure that in. And, uh, so yeah, you need something that can calibrate, um, and always check with your NRCS or FSA office. They may own one that you can, you can rent. Um, and if you don't have them, this is a great time. You know, we always talk about, uh, buying local and supporting local businesses. Well, as hunters, we should look to do the same thing. And, there's guys out there who do land management, like our buddy, Steve Hansen, you know, or, or, um, any other number of guys just look around. There's guys that for, they, they want the, their dream is to take care of hunting properties right. and they own the equipment. And for a man, for a couple, you know, maybe depending on the size of the area you're having them work on, maybe for a thousand bucks or something or less, a couple hundred bucks, you can support them, help them live out their dream, plus get all the benefits of their expertise. That's huge. You know, that, oh, yeah. <laughs> support those people and, and get them to do it. But like Jake said, too, you know, maybe that's just not an option for somebody. Maybe the finances or it's just not a very big area. And you do have to do a, you know, a, a hand seating or, you know, a little walk behind, you know, uh, uh, spreader. There's, there are some ways you can, you can uh, maximize that. First of all, the, the number one problem is spread, spreading all your seed at first and not covering all your ground, you know, <laughs> and, <We've all> done. <laughs> wait, I th- shouldn't there be more? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, that's not going to be good for multiple reasons. Obviously you're not getting your whole area covered, but now you've created all this competition for those few seeds and their little pile that they're all sitting in. So get a filler material that's going to help that's going to help slow down that rate of seeding. And uh, one that my boss, Carol, who's been doing this for 40 years, recommends to everyone is oil dry. So, you know, you can get like a big bag of oil dry from uh, the hardware store or something. And uh, you can mix that in with your seed. And that dilutes that, that distribution of seed on the ground. And you're putting down a substance that's basically dirt. You know, it's not, it's not something that's going to harm. Maybe you mix it in with, I've heard of guys using like fertilizer, you know, putting it in with a little bit of uh, a solid fertilizer. Um, so maybe uh, some dry manure or something like that, or, or, or compost. If you have a compost uh, pile that you have in your yard, or maybe you buy some compost from somebody, that's the only problem with some of that though, is now you might be reintroducing a lot of weed seed into your, into your mix. So that's the nice thing about using like an oil dry. Another one is oats and oats is probably my favorite because now you're getting, uh, a cover crop essentially. 
that isn't going to suck nutrients really away from your soil in any great way. It's going to put a little nitrogen back in. Um, and, uh, it's going to, and it's an annual crop and it's a, it's a, it's a forage crop too, right? It's a browse. It's something that deer are going to actually be able to use too. And, and I'm glad, I'm glad you, we, we went this way because I do need to remind people native species they're most well known for their root system. It's what's going on below ground for that, that makes them so iconic and so valuable. You know, big blue stem has a root system that stretches down like, like 12 or 13 feet. I've seen the you pictures know? where it's yeah. turf grass and then it shows native season or warm season grasses. And it's like, it's so crazy. It's insane. They're just it's, as long underneath the soil and maybe longer than above yeah exactly exactly right and and there's other species that are you know even longer than that like lead plant and compass plant you know those things go down even further than uh, big blue and so all that to say it might look like you're not gaining much for those first couple of years in your seeding that's because that energy is going into developing that root system that's gonna that a perennial plant needs and so and so be patient and that's where having those oats as a cover crop helps buy them time to get established, helps hold down the weeds, um, helps by giving you a food source um, that the deer are going to appreciate in the in the meantime. Um, but um, that being said, you know, by year two and years two and three, you should, and especially three, you'll have a really nice stand there of of those natives. So use a, use a good filler to spread out your seed when you're, when you're seeding it. And then um, I, if possible, you know, we talked about this cycle a little bit earlier where we said, okay, when's the right time to start prepping? Well, right now it's right now. Mm-hmm. It's in the fall. We're getting some of these, these late summer, early fall rains that are causing that second green up. You probably know it. If, I don't know if you guys got this last we did on Monday. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Needed so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember hearing you on a, on another one of your podcasts here within the last few months about how dry it's been there. Um, and you just planted all those trees too. Yes. Um, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, get that once those rains come in, those, those, uh, late summer, early fall rains, you get that second green up. That's, you know, that's the time to kill it off. And so, but let's say you're on the opposite cycle. Let's say you don't start until spring. So you're going to do your first kill off then in probably April, you know, after that first green up, green up, and then you're going to be doing your second kill off now um, in September, you know, and late August, September. And so then you're going to be seeding instead of seeding in May, like everyone who's doing their first kill off right now is going to be doing, you're going to be ready to seed for a dormant seeding which in my opinion is best um, for native grasses doesn't make a difference. But if you want to have a lot of forbs in there, which forbs equals natural deer food, right? Um, a lot of those species need what's called cold stratification. They need a, they need a time of being at, at uh, you know, cold temperatures. And, and they need to be in kind of a damp environment. Well, the perfect place for that naturally is wintertime soil, right? It's cold and damp. And what that does is it wakes those seeds up out of dormancy and makes them, you know, viable and ready to grow. And so if you do a dormant seeding, this is the best hack. I just learned this this summer from a lady who uh, manages a lot of prairie. 
she said she likes to do her dormant seating right, you know, late enough in the year to where you're not going to have, you know, another 70, you know, three 70 degree days in a row. Like we get when we all take our rutcation every year. In November. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get a little, you know, your seeds all germinate and then boom, they get a killing frost uh, on the day when everyone shoots their buck. Finally, they, that killing frost comes in and wipes out that seeding. And so don't go too early. You know, I, I suggest waiting till like around Thanksgiving at this latitude, you know, farther South you go, the longer you got to wait. Um, or, uh, you know, going to December is fine or even January is fine. You need basically 30 days of that, that cold stratification. And, um, uh, what that'll do is, uh, it'll allow for an opportunity where you can have a snowfall like maybe just an inch or two and you could go out and broadcast your seed over that, that snow covered ground. And now you have a perfect indicator of where you've spread seed. Mm. So now, you know, everything that you've seeded. Um, and that's the biggest, that's the biggest challenge for people when they're, when they're doing a, a you know, like a little, uh, you know, Scott's, you know, monkey yep. organ crank, uh, <laughs> thing that there are, or, or, uh, you know, even the wash behind cedars is, did I get there yet? You know? And when you got that little bit of snow that tells you if you've been there or not. And then also the snow helps protect the seed from mice and birds that, you know, say, Oh, look, a free meal right there on the, on the ground. So, so there's a little bit of, you know, that that's, a, I thought that was a pretty good tip for somebody who's doing that. And then, um, one other thing is don't plant it too deep. Uh, you'll read online. Don't go over a, you know, a quarter of an inch. Um, I would say that's more like an eighth of an inch is what people should be thinking about. Um, you're better off just throwing the seed down on the ground and not covering it with anything mm-hmm. than you are, uh, go going too deep. If you go too deep, it just plain and simple will not come up. Think about how these, plants naturally seed themselves wind buffalo hides and elk hides and deer hides and water runoff they're they're left on the surface and um that's how they that's how they germinate that's their adaptation to to how they survive and so uh you can't you can't go against it you're not planting corn you're planting prairie and um it's it's important to treat it that way. How important is it? So we'll say for the guy that does spray this fall, they spray again in the spring, and then they mm-hmm. drill or broadcast in, in May, and then throughout that first summer, how what are some timely mowings? Do you need to mow it, or do you just hope and pray and wait two years and hope all the things that are supposed to come up come? Yeah, up? yeah. Well, if you, I mean, you're gonna want to mow it for sure that first year and probably that second year as well we advise when we give out advice for like uh pollinator plots or even uh you know crp they kind of build that in there you have that expected maintenance that you're supposed to do once you plant a stand and you also have the pressure of maybe the fsa shows up to come check your compliance and and that kind of thing but when someone's just doing like a you know their own project like this where there is no oversight, we, we recommend mowing three times the first year and then mowing uh, twice the second year. And then by year three, all should be good. Now, that being said, you're, we're also dealing with people who are really interested with planting a lot of flowers there, which I would still recommend the hunters to do. Again, that's, that's natural deer food. If you buy 
uh, a mix that has a lot of forbs. Yes, it's more expensive, but you're putting down a lot of deer food. Um, but you know, if like if you're just going with the screen thing, you're just got some switchgrass and big blue and Indian grass in there. Um, if you just left it alone, let's say you did nothing. Let's say you just threw the seed out there. You would probably still by year five or six have a pretty good stand. It's going to be weedy. Um, but you, those species will start to take over, especially the switchgrass and big blue. They'll start, they'll start to really hold their own, but, um, you know, and, and, but that also depends on what your, your weed competition is too. You know, if it's a lot of reed canary grass or something like that, then, uh, you know, you're going to, that, that's, that's just going to be a challenge. You might have to start over. So I would recommend doing a couple mowings and I would wait, you know, until the grass gets, you know, uh, we have a new production field of big blue this year. And I think the first time we, we mowed that thing, uh, it was probably chest high. And, um, there was, it was kind of funny. There was some, uh, uh, native marijuana growing there in the, uh, the new big blue stem field. And this guy came by to like put in a seed order or something. And he like walked outside to get in his truck to leave. And then like two minutes later, he comes walking back in and he's like, Hey, what all are you guys growing in this field over here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, did you notice the marijuana out there? He's like, yeah, I thought that was kind of strange. I think he thought we had like a little uh, side business going on there. But, but uh, no, it, you know, we mowed it when it got to like chest high. That was probably a little taller than what we normally would do, but it definitely didn't hurt anything. And when you mow it, how, how far do you mow it down? Do you mow like you're mowing a yard ankle, or 10 inches yeah, high? Yeah, right. Ankle high is, is about you know, what you could go with. Yeah. Like you said, a yard high is, is okay. okay. Um, and then now we've kept it now that we got it through that first mowing, you know, we've kept it about that height for the rest of the summer. So, uh, yeah, I would, the, the big thing there is know your equipment too. You know, if we're talking again about a guy who's got limited equipment, well, shoot, if all you got is a zero turn lawnmower, you know, that's a big, that's a big tool to have, but it doesn't mow, you know, standing hay fields, <laughs> you know, you, you're going to have to keep that at a manageable height, you know, to be able to do that. Otherwise you're going to have to have your neighbor come in there with a bush hog or something and, and, uh, or, you know, or a disc mower or something and, and cut it down for you. So I would, I would, uh, you know, just kind of gauge that based on what your equipment is and, three mowing should be plenty. And what that does is it doesn't mean that weeds aren't going to come up. It just keeps them from laying on seed mm-hmm. and, and, uh, allows those, you know, especially big blue. And I think even switchgrass could get this classification. They are, they're called aggressive species where they really assert themselves once they're established. Yeah. And, um, well, and so you'll be, you'll be set then. Part of, uh, part of my planning this year was, a couple, there was two screens of switch. So they were, they allowed me to do two screens of switch part of the program. And then the rest of it oh, was nice. pollinators and a lot of it was one, two grasses. But, you know, this is the first time I've ever done that. And I'm looking at it midsummer thinking, oh man, did I screw, did I screw something up here? And uh, so I mowed it off. And then I think it was two weeks ago. I was like, oh my gosh, there's some switch grass. There really is some yeah. switch grass showing itself. I didn't mess it up. And, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit different. It's a different process than, for most people that plant food plots, you you know you wait for rain, you go back two weeks later, and you're, oh, this is what this is, this is what this is. That was not my experience this yeah. year, but but uh, I'm excited to see what it looks like next year too. Yeah, for sure. And I would definitely give you know give the depending on when you seed, you know you seed in May. I'd wait until sometime in June to do your first mowing. 
just so you know that that root system is really established and you're not going to, when you mow, you're truly cutting the plant. You're not uprooting a little, you know, a little seedling really, you know, you're not, what you're, you're not cutting it when the plants in its most delicate stage, you know? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, really great information there. Cause I think that is a highly misunderstood or uh, maybe it's, and there's just a lot of confusing things and there's so there's mm-hmm. obviously a lot of ways to do it and, and maybe that's a good thing but uh for a guy that's just getting started i think sometimes that provides a little paralysis of them just not oh, really yeah. screw it up so do you yeah. guys cover a lot of this in your guys's uh, company podcast yeah yeah we talk about this stuff and we actually have a youtube channel where um my coworker nicholas and i we're, we're talking about doing this again we haven't done this for a couple of years um, but, uh, my coworker, Nicholas interviews our, um, owner, Carol, our founder, and he, uh, just kind of rapid fires and different questions about, about growing prairie and he's, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Carol is, he is uh, a man of few words. He's a classic farmer. So he sits there, you know, and he thinks for a minute and then he gives you probably the best answer you'll find anywhere yeah. on I mean, he's been there. He's done that with it. And, and, uh, so that's a good place to go. So you just look up the Hoxie native seeds, YouTube channel. I think you just type in Hoxie or Hoxie native seeds and it's a unique enough name that it'll pop right up. Um, but yeah, we also, we interview people from the hunting industry and we interview people from, um, just (laughs) who knows, they may not even like hunting, uh, but they're, you know, they're just firmly in the prairie industry and um they they live and breathe prairie plants and so um yeah maybe we don't see eye to eye with all of our guests on everything especially uh, like i said with like hunting or something that provokes good conversation though. exactly and they know their stuff yeah and so you know it's you, we've just been so blessed by getting to talk to to so many of these these great people that have so much great information to share awesome well Really appreciate your time and uh, hearing your story and excited to hear about the multiple chapters in the future after you kind of execute your plan that you put together. And yeah. uh, I'm definitely going to hop on the Hoxie Seed YouTube channel and uh, educate myself because I got plenty of that to do. And uh, I really appreciate it. If you want to plug anything, you want to plug your guys' podcast or anything else, uh, feel free to take a chance to do that. Yeah. Well, again, Jake, I, I just really appreciate you uh, having me on here. We need to do a hunt together sometime. Um, uh, and, and you, you got my number now. So if, uh, you have a hard time recovering your Iowa buck this year, I hope now, right, hopefully, uh, hopefully yeah. you get a celebration call. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I'll be happy to happy to help you out with anything like that, but, but at least do a shed hunt together sometime. That'd be, that'd be fun. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. So just, Thank you again for having me on your show. Please check out our uh, our website, www.hoxynativeseeds.com. And you can find all the stuff you need there. If you're really interested in like getting, you know, maybe some native pollinator patches put in your yard, you could also go to theprairiefarm.com. That's another one of our websites. And uh, you can find uh, Hoxie on Instagram at, um, at Hoxie Native Seeds. And also, uh, consider checking out my podcast too. It's called the first gen hunter podcast. Um, you might think, yeah, but I'm not a first gen hunter podcast. I, I have people like Jake on there, you know, who's been hunting his whole life and has 
has uh, talked to the greatest people in the hunting world and Mark Kenyon's been on there and, and uh, Skip is going to be on there at some point. And so there's a lot of people that, that have a ton of hunting experience. We talk about every, you know, it's not just whitetails. We talk, we just did an elk series uh, like a month ago. We're kind of in a, a whitetail mule deer series. Now we got grizzly attack stories. We got all sorts of stuff on there wow. that'll, that'll keep you interested. So yeah, check that out. And then you can also find me on Instagram at first.gen.hunter. And I'd uh, love to interact with you. If you got any questions about growing prairie, um, just uh, give me a shout and I'll be more than happy to coach you up on it. Um, I think uh, it, when you consider like why Jake does this, you know, runs two shows and, and, and why, you know, I do what I do. It's because we're passionate about, about the product and um, the product for both of us is the land we want. We value that land. We live close to that land. It's the thing that lasts beyond us. And um, so if I can ever help anybody out in that way, um, I, man, I'd love to. So reach out and, and give me a shout if you ever need something like that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kent. Good luck this year. And uh, yeah, definitely well, man. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks again, Jake. There you guys have it. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Be sure to use the code LP, the letter L, the letter P, to save 20% off the Exodus render. Keep some coin in your pocket and get a reliable camera that is backed by our five-year warranty and five-year theft and damage coverage. There you guys have it. Until next time, have a great week. See you.